The book of Acts, chapter 16, moving through, <laughs> not, not, uh, not gaining a lot of ground quickly, but we want to be able to cover this stuff and, and uh, take a, a good look at what's going on. My prayer, folks, is that, yeah, that, that, that we find immediate relevance because these things apply to our lives personally. As we look at the lessons, as we look at the situations that unfold in God's word, that we would take that and overlay that uh, and find relevance because the Bible is eternally relevant. Uh, it amazes me how so many different writers could come together over so many centuries, so many centuries ago, and, and, and that it could just be, it's, it's like uh, it weaves into a beautiful tapestry that truly does apply to our lives. That's my prayer this morning as we look at this, as we're getting into uh, the story part here, or the part of, of the story here in the book of Acts, uh, where Paul and uh, uh, Silas have been traveling. They picked up Timothy along the way in the town of Lystra in Galatia. Remember last week we looked at the fact that these guys, uh, they had started out from Antioch in Syria, had to go over this huge mountain pass through the Cilician Gates and uh, would have been uh, <laughs> quite a journey not a straight line like we see on the maps, uh, but really a, a, a huge undertaking, 11,000 foot mountains that they had to go over on foot. Uh, and Paul had been sick. We don't know how ill he was or if he had lingering effects. We know in Second Corinthians, he says, look, God gave me a thorn in the flesh and I prayed that it would be removed and it wasn't. So he doesn't say what that thorn was. But we can understand, too, that he wasn't in the greatest health. And so he's traveling along with Silas. They, they meet up with Timothy, find out that Timothy's mother and grandmother were both uh, people who had come to believe. They were Jewish ladies that uh, lived there in Gentile territory. However, uh, evidently, Timothy had been raised up uh, understanding Judaism. His father was Greek. His mother was Jewish, as I mentioned and then when they, Paul and Barnabas had preached the gospel the first time, going through the region, uh, that they had come to believe, that they had come to faith. And so uh, we don't know to what extent Paul poured into Timothy on his first journey, but we know that when they met up on his second journey, that Timothy was raised up. Timothy was identified by Paul as the one that he believed that God was raising up to accompany him going forward, and he did. And so now there are three men. There's Paul and Silas and Timothy, and they've been traveling across Asia. Remember, they got to a point where they wanted to go down. If you look at the first map, uh, if you could bring up the map number one, and you'll see in the inset area, they wanted to go down and visit the churches to the southwest in Asia, uh, all the ones that have a yellow dot by them, and I know it's kind of small up there, but all the ones that have a yellow dot, those are the seven churches that we see in the book of Revelation. They, they were actually pretty close to each other in kind of a line there. And then there's Ephesus on the coast. And uh, it, Paul had, he wanted to go to the larger cities because it was easier to take the gospel to the larger cities and then to see it be disseminated to the smaller cities out 
in the outlying areas. That was his plan. So he wanted to do that, and the Holy Spirit said, no, <laughs> you ain't going there. And, and so they kept going, and they were traveling along the northern part of Asia. Again, Asia, not this huge continent that we look at as Asia today, but an area, now modern-day Turkey, where they're traveling along. And, and so the Holy Spirit said, no, I don't want you going to the southwest. I don't want you going to the cities there in Asia. I want you to just keep going. They get up to Mycia or Mysia. People call it, I don't, I don't know which one it is. But they get up to Mycia and they say, well, let's go north into Bithynia because there are some big cities up there. That's where Istanbul, modern day Istanbul, the capital of Turkey and all of that, it would be Constantinople back in the days of Constantine. But there were still large areas, large population centers up there. And, and the Holy Spirit said, no, <laughs> I don't want you going up there either. So here they are. They're, they're sort of put into a squeeze to be able to just continue heading west. And they go to Troas. And that's where we pick it up. Uh, here in the narrative in Acts chapter 16, verse 8, says, So passing by Mycenae, they came to Troas. And Troas was a seaport on, uh, on, on the, the east coast of the Aegean Sea, which is the sea that separates Asia from Europe uh, or from that part of the world. Uh, there at, at Mycenae and, and Asia from Macedonia, which is now northern Greece. And so... They get to Mycia. It's interestingly too, Mycia is, I mean Troas. Uh, Troas is about four miles from ancient Troy. Heard about the Trojan Wars and all of that uh, in ancient literature. And, and, and a lot of the Trojan War stuff, I believe, is fable. But I really do believe that, <laughs> that Troy existed. Uh, the ruins are there. And that the Trojans existed. And that, that's where that all came about. Uh, just a side note, there's a lot of history in this area. And in, uh, we see here in the second map, it's a blow up of what we see in the first one. We can see the, the steps that Paul and Timothy and Silas took coming out of Lystra, which would be off the right side of the map. They get to Antioch and Pisidia uh, and they stay there. Then they travel across and they, again, they end up in Troas, as you see there, on the west coast of Asia. In verse 9, while they're at Troas, a vision appeared to Paul in the night. A man of Macedonia stood and pleaded with him, saying, come over to Macedonia to help us. Now, we don't know how Paul knew that this guy was from Macedonia. <laughs> it's a vision. It doesn't have to make sense. I mean, he could have just had a strong impression that this guy's Macedonian, uh, it could have been, I mean, he could have, it could have been like, you know, if it's somebody from New York it appeared to me in a vision, be, hey, come on over here. You know, there could have been a, an accent or clothing. We don't know. But we do know that Paul identifies this guy as Macedonian. <laughs> and, uh, but, and being a vision, some believe, and interesting, people have different ideas about stuff like this. And, and in my opinion, they read into the scripture, which is a dangerous thing at times to do. You don't spiritualize everything you see in the Bible. If you try to do that, you're going to end up out in the weeds somewhere. And there are people that say, oh, this is Luke before they met up with Luke. And it's like, there is nothing in God's word that indicates that this was Luke. 
You can believe that if you want. <laughs> not going to lose your salvation over it. But uh, again, I don't, I don't see it. Uh, understanding Macedonia is in Europe. Troas is in Asia. And, and the Macedonian call holds a significant place in history. Uh, I, want you to, I want you to catch that. It would be the first time that the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ, that it would be carried into Europe. And this is, this is the first time. This is the first venture out. Second journey. But remember their first journey. They limited it to the, the region around Galatia and Antioch and all of that. And they went back. Uh, but here, they're venturing further than they ever had. And they're about to carry the gospel into Europe. Remember Jesus, before he left, right before he ascended, he gave his apostles He gave him what we call the Great Commission. He said, you know, I want you to go. I want you to go to Jerusalem, which would be the immediate area. I want you to go to Judea, which would be like, okay, I want you to go to Newburgh. And then I want you to go to Yamhill County. That would be the the vicinity. Uh, And that that was Judea in that day. And then I want you to go to Samaria. And you guys know, I always call that the bad neighborhood because the Samaritans were severely disliked by the Jews. And it's essentially that God says, so what? Go to them anyway. It's not about whether you like them or not. It's about whether or not Christ died for them. And that's true for us, folks. Uh, there are people that rub me. There are people that have different political views. There are people that have different ideologies. Every one of them is somebody for whom Christ died. And that needs to come first in our consideration. So He says, go from there to the uttermost parts of the earth. And this is part of the uttermost parts in those days. So the the gospel has been going widening. I look at it like concentric circles. You drop a stone in a pond and the circles start to, to widen out. And they've been widening out since the gospel was introduced in Jerusalem in that area. And now, and it did go, we saw earlier in the book of Acts, it went to Judea, and then it went to Samaria, and now it's been going to the uttermost parts. These guys are going further than they ever have. Interesting too, it says that in this vision that the man was pleading with Paul. Uh, In the original, that is an extremely strong word. Uh, It'd be similar to him saying, you've got to come. Uh, look, I, I'm pleading with you. Yet I, I won't take no for an answer. You need to come to Macedonia. We need your help. That's the tone here in this particular verse. It's not saying, well, let me ask you pretty please. No, the, the guy is pleading. He's saying, Paul, we need to have you here. And this is something that God did. Part of the vision that Paul received was that it was like, you need to do this. I've told you no to going north. I told you no to going south. And now I want you to head across the sea and go to Macedonia. Verse 10. Now, after he had seen the vision, immediately we sought to go to Macedonia, concluding that the Lord had called us to preach the gospel to them. So uh, God, interesting, does he still call people uh, to the work that he's appointed them to? Uh, through unusual ways. Does he still call people? Uh, I, I look at it, God does. He, he calls people through what I would call the natural, a natural supernatural uh, way. Uh, I look at how God brought Stacy and I here. Ten years ago, this, this year, God gave my wife and I a vision. At the same moment, 
but separately. It wasn't like we got together and said, hey, let's have a vision. No, I had a, a particular vision. She had one. And we were at, we were worshiping the Lord together in a park, and uh, both of us began to weep because the Holy Spirit had just fallen on us and it was very very moving, and and, and I, I looked at her after this all happened and and I I wanted to tell her the Lord just gave me a vision for serving Him that He's pulling us onward, uh, and, and I, I saw that her eyes were all messed up she'd been crying. She said, God just gave me a vision. And I'm like, seriously? And, uh, but my point is, is that he still does that. He does still call people through supernatural manifestations of his spirit. Got to be careful. Not everybody that says, Lord, Lord, Jesus says, you, you need to be careful that when people are saying, Lord, Lord, he's over here, he's over there. That's absolutely true. But if your heart is right and you're, and you're sincere, and then we took that and we took it to people that we know, that we respect, there's victory or safety in a multitude of counselors, and, and, and realize that, look, this is something that we believe God is doing. And it would be several years before he actually brought it to bout. But that was the, that was the start. Uh, that was the seed that the Holy Spirit planted in our lives to come and to end up in this church. Uh, just an amazing thing for us to look back on. Does he do it that way with everybody? No. Uh, there are times where he just, it's like, like we saw with Silas. He just thought, had a thought one day. Well, I don't think I'll go back to Jerusalem. I think I'll stick around here in Antioch. Boom, he ends up being called onto the mission field. So it's not always the same. The point in all of it, this is still possible uh, for a, a sort of a Macedonian call to come to people to serve God in a particular way. Uh, I love it when I see the Lord move in that fashion. And uh been several times over the 40 or so years I've been a Christian that I've actually been part of seeing this manifestation of God's spirit as he is doing things in a way that's unmistakable. Also want you to notice something else here uh, in verse 10. Uh, the use of the, the, the pronouns we and us. Now I'm going to talk about pronouns, but that's, and that's a hot button in today's culture is pronouns. Hey, let me see your pronoun. That's not that, the, I mean, that word has existed long before that became a weird thing. Luke, as he's writing, he talks about we and us. Uh, and we know that he wrote the book of Acts. But up until this point, he's used the pronouns they and them. He's talked about that them in the third person. It's like, okay, this is what they were doing. And now he shifts in his narrative. Uh, and we understand that this is, I mentioned last week that Luke was, he was a modest man. He was a humble guy. He did not, you know, make this all about him. He was being used of God and he was used of God in absolutely in significant ways. We know that sitting here a couple thousand years later reading his work. And yet this is where he joined Paul and Silas and Timothy. Now there's four, all of them uh, Roman citizens, all of them love Jesus, all of them realizing again that through the events in their lives, that natural, supernatural thing that I'm talking about, that God had put them together for his purposes. Pay attention to that. We'll talk about God's purposes as we get towards the end of the message. Um, 
Also, I think it's worth mentioning that even though Luke will be with them for a short time on this second missionary journey, Paul and Luke would become extremely close. They would become very good friends and they would, they would co-labor together for many years. Uh, Luke would travel with Paul again on his third journey. And we know that again through the narrative here in the book of Acts. Later on, he would accompany Paul to Jerusalem when he was under arrest. And then he uh, would also uh, uh, accompany him to Rome as he got arrested and taken off and carted off to Rome to go to jail there. So Luke was with Paul a great deal of the time after this. There are chunks of time where he wasn't with him, but this is the beginning of a relationship that would literally last to the end of Paul's life. Verse 11, therefore, sailing from Troas, we ran a straight course to Samothrace and the next day came to Neapolis and from there to Philippi, which is the foremost city of that part of Macedonia, a colony. I want you to hang on to that. This is a Roman colony. And, and we stayed and we were staying in that city for some days. So now in this third map that I have, you can see just I've just zoomed in on uh, these four locations, Troas in Samothrace and Neapolis and Philippi. Now Troas, like I said, it was about four miles from Troy and it was a regular port of departure for people that wanted to travel to Macedonia. Uh, there was a, a major Roman road because as, as you know, the Greece and then Italy next to it, they're both peninsulas that extend down into the Mediterranean Sea. So there wasn't, there was ship traffic but if you wanted to travel over land, you had to go to the northern part of both of those regions. And the, the landing spot was Neapolis uh, for you to be able to get on the road that would head off and go eventually to Rome or, or to Athens or wherever. So Troas was an important port. That's my point. Now, Samothrace, it, if you look, it, it's an island. It was a small island in the northern Aegean Sea. Um, and it was the second, it had the second tallest mountain in all of the Aegean Sea. Uh, it was over a mile high. So there's this small little chunk of rock, with a big mountain sticking out of it. Uh, and it provided, because very often sailors in those days, they didn't sail, they, they didn't have a transit and all of the things that modern sailing ships have today. I mean, they had ways to navigate, they navigated by the stars, but they would do line of sight. And if you got an island sticking a mile high up out of the water, you can pretty much just count on pointing your ship in that direction and you're going to get there. So that was an important point of navigation for them on their way to do this trip to Neapolis and Philippi. Now, Neapolis, it literally means new city. Uh, it was a coastal city, which was, it provided a port for the larger city of Philippi. And Philippi, as you see on the map here, was about nine miles inland. So I just want you to locate these things. Again, I like to locate these things geographically. I like to be able to look at these to, to understand these are real places. There are ruins there. If you looked at the title slide that I had uh, this morning underneath the text, there's a picture uh, of the ruins of the arena at Philippi. It's still there. People still visit. There, there are extensive ruins in Philippi. So the other thing about that is in verse 11, Luke uses a nautical term, we ran a straight course. And I think that that's interesting. 
In other words, they had a tailwind which gave them easy sailing and enabled them to set a straight course. I, I, folks, I just I find it fascinating, and I don't want to read too much into this, but I think it's fascinating that you know the Holy Spirit said no. <laughs> you can't go to Bithynia. No, you can't go down to the cities in Asia. Yes, I want you to go to Troas. Now, I want you to go to Macedonia. And the minute they hop on the ship, and if you've done any sailing at all, I've done a little bit. Uh, if you have a contrary wind, it is not fun <laughs> at all. Uh, as a matter of fact, uh, these guys in, in Acts 20, they take the reverse trip back. Now, they were able to travel 156 miles in two days, in, in one of these ancient sailing ships. Uh, coming back the other direction, uh, we see, and it says in Acts 20, verse 6, that it took them five days to do the same trip, but in return, because they had a contrary wind. But I think it's amazing that these guys have the wind at their back, and the minute they get on that boat, that, that the whole, it's as though the Holy Spirit is just saying, okay, let me just, just breathe wind into those sails, and let me get you where I want you to go. And they head out. So when they get to Philippi, uh, now I want to tell you a little bit about Philippi. It, it was originally, it was, a, it was a city called Crenides. Crenides, <laughs> yeah. Uh, or it was called the place of many fountains or many wells. Depends on the understanding of the language. Uh, Philippi was actually, that was its original name, but in 356, a guy by the name of Philip II of Macedon attacked the city and, and seized it and renamed it after himself. <laughs> there were gold mines in the area and he wanted the plunder, so he took it upon himself. Now, Philip of Macedon was, you've heard of Alexander the Great, the great military leader, the great Greek military leader that expanded the Greek empire prior to the Romans coming in. It was his dad, his father. So he was the one that established Philippi, and that's why it got its name Philippi, named it after himself. Uh, and it also became, in these days, now as it came under Roman rule, it became a Roman colony. And I, that's really important. And you can miss this just reading through the text, but you've got to understand something. A Roman colony was distinct. They were given, uh, it, was, they were, it was a set of rights and privileges. Uh, it was called the Eus Italicum. And if, you, if, it, if you're a city that had the Eus Italicum applied to you by Rome, literally that translates as if it were Italian soil. In other words, if you go to the U.S. Embassy in any country, the minute you walk onto the embassy grounds, it's as though it was American soil. And they can't get you. <laughs> they can't do anything. Uh, and once you get onto the embassy grounds, and you've seen that in movies and all that, you're safe. You're, you're good. Because all of the laws of the United States apply to you there. doesn't matter how weird the laws are in the land that you're in. You get onto that ground... That's what it was if you came to a city that had this had been granted this Eusitalicum status. And that's really important because towards the end of this chapter, Paul and, well, we'll see it next week, Paul and Silas are going to get carted off before the magistrates. They're going to get stripped naked and beaten with rods and thrown in the clink because they're being accused of being Jews. Now, the guys don't know 
that they're Roman citizens. And as such, they had specific rights that the client states, Israel was a client state. In other words, they were subordinate to Rome. These guys were equal with Rome. Okay, so if you're a Roman citizen in a Roman city, you had all of the rights as though you were standing on the ground in Rome and they had extremely important rights that they couldn't have if they were standing in Israel or if they were across the Aegean back in Asia or somewhere else. So that's just important to understand. It kind of lays the groundwork for what we're going to look at next week because the, the magistrates, they actually come and, and after they realize that, uh-oh, <laughs> these guys aren't, they're not just Jews, they're Roman citizens. And, and they, they come with their hat in their hand and, and ask them pretty, please, would you leave? Because they realize that they could be, um, they could be killed for the work that they had done and, and for the way that they had literally assaulted Roman citizens. So we'll get into that later. But that was because Philippi was a Roman colony. And, and Luke calls it out here. It would have been understood in his culture, but you know, take some time to explain it that way. They were exempt from Roman taxes. Uh, the ones that they levied upon, again, the, the people, they were very heavy taxes. If you were a, a city or a state that was under Roman rule, but not part of Rome in that sense. They also could buy and sell property, Women had specific rights. They were protected by Roman law. There were lots of rights and privileges that you had if you were in one of these cities. Verse 13, And on the Sabbath day, we went out of the city to the riverside where prayer was customarily made. I think that's interesting. There was a place designated for them to go where prayer was customarily made. And we sat down and spoke to the women who met there. Now, this fourth slide, this is the Crenides River in Philippi. It's what it looks like today. And the flat stones there are part of an old Roman bridge that's long since washed out. But those stones have been sitting there for a couple of thousand years at least. And was this the spot where the guys went? We don't know. It was, if not, it was very close to it because this is right outside of the city of Philippi. So... Um, the reason to remember now when Paul goes to a city, especially when he goes, uh, the first thing he does is he looks for a synagogue. If there were not 10 Jewish households in a city, 10 males in their households, they didn't build the synagogue. And so what Paul knew was that the people customarily, they, on the Sabbath day, on Shabbat, they, if they didn't have a building to meet in, that they would meet down at the river. The question comes as to why. Why would they do that? Uh, first of all, at the river, it was identified with living water to a Jewish thinking person. Now, we're going to see here, these women are God-fearers, okay? They're, they're not born Jew, Jewish people. They're Gentiles, but they're God-fearers, they were probably, uh, if they were not proselytes, converted to Judaism, they were sympathetic and, and they had leanings towards the God of Abraham. They understood that. They liked the monotheistic religion of the Jews. And I believe part of the reason why we see a group of women here is because, remember, we've talked about in Gentile culture, 
<laughs> that culture was just the, the morality and the ethics of Gentile culture was horrible. By contrast, the morality and ethics offered by Judaism gave them a standard by which they could live where women were actually elevated. Now, Christ, with Christianity, elevated women to equal status as men. He was the first one in history that did that. But understand that, that Gentile culture was, it was very, very corrupt. And it was very sexually perverse, and women had no security at all. Men would hop from one to the another, to another, to another, and they could divorce their women, their wives easily. It was a, it was a pretty messy society. And so there were some real attractions to the God of Abraham afforded to these women. Was that the only reason why there was a, a group of women there? Don't know. May have just been a group of women that were friends and said, you know, let's go down and let's pray at the, at the river and all of that. When we look at why they met at the river, remember in Judaism, the place of ceremonial cleansing was very high on their list of priorities. They had to be ceremonially clean. The way that they did that in Israel was they would go to a mikvah. If you go outside the temple, I stood outside the temple, it was the south, uh, on the south side of the temple mount, and the hillside going down the hill was littered with mikvahs, Jewish ceremonial baths, just little small baths. In order for that bath to be, to, to, for it to meet their requirements, it had to have water flowing in and water flowing out. Water had to flow in order to be considered living water. That's why Jesus makes a big deal out of living water. All right? Not static. Uh, if you go to the Sea of Galilee, I remember standing at the Sea of Galilee one time, Stacy and I were standing there and the uh, guy was talking and he said, you will not see a single mikvah on the, on the Sea of Galilee. Why? Because the Jordan River flows into it and the Jordan River flows out of it. The entire lake, because it's a big lake, is considered living water. Here, these women are gathered at the riverside because that's considered living water. It's flowing. And so it would be important in their minds to be in a place where they could be ceremonially cleansed as they went through the Jewish rites and rituals. That was just, it was just part of what they did, part of their culture. By contrast, the Dead Sea, if you understand anything about the Dead Sea, it's the lowest place on earth. And water flows in, but it doesn't flow out. So <laughs> you need a mikvah there. Uh, at any rate, uh, verse 14, Now a certain woman named Lydia heard us, and she was a seller of purple from the city of Thyatira who worshipped God. I think that's significant. She doesn't yet know Jesus, but she's a worshiper of God. She's a God-fearer. And the Lord opened her heart to heed the things spoken by Paul. So now here's this woman, Lydia, and her namesake comes from the ancient province where her hometown of Thyatira is located. And that was a custom. Very often, uh, women would take their names from their hometown or their home region. And, and prior to that being, because Thyatira is one of the yellow circled cities we looked at the map in Asia. Well, prior to that, it was called, the region was called Lydia. Uh, but this is a real person. It's not a, somebody that's a representation of that area. And some people say that, again, 
No, he's talking to a human being here whose name was Lydia. Uh, and she was from that area, Thyatira. And she was evidently a very, very successful businesswoman. Now, anybody who was a seller of purple, uh, you got to understand how this stuff comes about. Uh, it, they dealt in a highly valued and, and luxurious product. I mean, this is a luxury item. This is top shelf. This is stuff you don't just buy at Rite Aid. I mean, this is some really expensive dye that they used. And the, now the, the, the dyes that they used, uh, I'll show the slide here. Uh, they, it was known as Tyrian purple from the, the city of Tyre. Tyre and Sidon were north of Jerusalem, south of Antioch, uh, along the Mediterranean coast there. But it was the Tyrian purple. It was produced by a carnivorous sea snail known as a murex. Now, how many snails do you got to squeeze to be able to get enough purple out to dye some cloth? (laughs) It, It took about 120 pounds of snails to make one gram of dye. This stuff, at one time, it was considered to be 10 to 15 times more valuable than gold. So if you were a seller of purple, you had a very limited market, but the market that you sold to could afford it. You ever heard the saying, you know why they have that car? Because they can. <laughs> you know why they have that color purple? Because they can. This is, that's the clientele that Lydia serves. So you got to understand when, when Luke identifies her as a seller of purple, he's saying that she was probably of the aristocratic class and she was worth a lot. And she, she had a very successful business. I think it's also wonderful and, and uh, encouraging to me that this is on Saturday. He, Luke says, this is Shabbat. This is the Sabbath. Saturday for a Gentile was the busiest commerce day of the week. Then that was their deal. That's what they did. And so where are her priorities? She set them aside. She said, well, I'll get back to work. But right now I'm going to go pray. I'm going to go worship God. I'm going to go hang with the people of God. And I think that that's wonderful. This Tyrian purple was, uh, it was also associated with royalty. Uh, in Mark chapter 15, when the soldiers were mocking Christ before they led him off to be crucified, in verse 17 of Mark um, 15, uh, it says, And they clothed, clothed him with purple, and they twisted a crown of thorns and put it on his head and began to salute him, saying, Hail, King of the Jews. So part of them mocking Jesus was dressing him in royal stuff. That's why they clothed him with purple, put the, the crown of thorns on his head. Uh, it says, then they struck him on the head with a reed and spat on him, and bowing the knee, they worshipped him. And when they had mocked him, they took the purple off of him, put his own clothes on him, and led him out to crucify him. You also see that the rich man in Lazarus, the rich man that's referred to in that story, it says he was clothed with fine purple. Interesting. So getting back to Lydia here, she had evidently she had resettled at Philippi because there was a likely there were far greater business opportunities uh, for commerce in, in this Roman colony than where she came from. Because again, if you look at Jewish culture, you look at what 
place women played in it, yes, there's a place for the Proverbs 31 woman and all of that. But women were largely looked at in those days as property. Well, this is a woman who, she's a Gentile woman. She identifies with the God of Abraham, but she's probably not Jewish. She's probably a woman that identifies with those things and she wanted to know God. She worshiped God, but she was a woman who saw that she needed to be able to be in a place where she was free to practice her craft. And Philippi offered that because it was a colony. It was also, Philippi was at the end of what's called the Ignatian Way. That was the major Roman road that ran east to west. Uh, so again, it was a, it was a, a it was a place where a lot of trade would be coming through. It says uh, Luke says that she was a, wor- a worshiper of God. Uh, now, there wasn't a synagogue here in Philippi, but we do know that in Thyatira, because it's written about, uh, that there was a synagogue there. Therefore, we can assume she'd been exposed to Judaism there. Uh, perhaps she had other family members. We don't know. We don't know that much about her. But as Paul shares with her, we see the Lord opening her heart. Again, that's significant. And I want you to understand something here. There's a very important spiritual dynamic at work as we share the gospel with others. Folks, it's our responsibility uh, to share with words and to share without words. It's our responsibility to be able to demonstrate by our lives that we love Jesus, to allow him to work in us, to transform us, all of that. But as we're bold in our witness of Christ, uh, we need to understand and we need to trust that God's the one that opens the heart. You cannot take it personally. And please, don't take the burden of someone's rejection upon yourself unless there's some glaring thing about your life that they go, yeah, well, you're not somebody I want to identify as a Christian. (laughs) You think I want what you have? Forget it. No, I mean, there is a place where it just allows you witness. But I mean, if you're being bold in your witness and your life lines up, that doesn't mean you're perfect. It means that your life lines up with the way that you live and what you believe. Take Jesus's admonition. If people reject the witness, he says, they're, going, they're not going to like you because they don't like me. And if they reject that, if they reject the gospel, they're not rejecting you, they're rejecting me. And if they're rejecting me, shake, shake the dust off your feet. In other words, finish your business there and go somewhere else where they will listen to you. Paul here, uh, he's speaking to a group of women. We don't know how many of the women converted that day. We don't know how many of them gave their lives to Christ, but she did. He had the privilege of watching the Lord open her heart. God opens the heart. We don't do that. We can't do that. Again, you can talk until you watch some... (laughs) I usually go until I see somebody's eyes glaze over (laughs) because it's like, okay, they're done. And I mean, I try to be perceptive of that. And there's times where the Holy Spirit has gotten me in a posture of, okay, well, I'll keep pressing forward because I think that God's doing something here. But when they reject, understand, that's not your job. Your job is to share. Your job is to put it out there. We're to speak the truth in love. Uh, and I guarantee you that not everyone will hear it. But again, not our job. And how exciting is it when we see someone's heart touched 
and opened. Uh, those times where I see that transaction taking place in another's life, powerful, exciting, wonderful to know that God is transforming a life and because that person is chosen to let Christ fully in. There are people that name the name of Christ. Yeah, but there are also people who have allowed him to open their heart. Verse 15, And when she and her household were baptized, she begged us, saying, If you judge me to be faithful to the Lord, come to my house and stay. And so she persuaded us. Baptism. Folks, if you understand baptism, you know that it's an outward sign of an inward act. The symbolism is powerful. It's death to the old life. I've been crucified with Christ. We're baptized into his death, the Bible tells us. And then coming out of the water, we're raised to newness of life, to a resurrection life, a life of power. To understand that we are powerless without the work of the Holy Spirit. Talk about that in a minute. It says that she and her household were baptized. Uh, Again, Lydia would be the first convert in Europe. The very first. The first one to respond to the gospel. Lydia's household would become the very first church in Europe. Now, I'm not talking about they didn't go out and build the building, a chapel. (laughs) I like our chapel. Don't get me wrong. But that's not the church. This, this is a tent for the temple. All right? We are the church. And Jesus said, whenever two or more of you are gathered together in my name, there am I in the midst of you. That's church. And, and the, the word is ecclesia, ecclesia, and it literally means set apart ones. That's the word we use for church. So understand that, that when she and her household are baptized, it's like, Lydia, I don't know what to tell you, but you got a church. <laughs> and then, then, so how do we know that, that they got grounded? That they, well, she begged Paul and Silas and Timothy and Luke, please come and stay at my house. Evidently, again, she was well off enough that she had a lot of room. She had her household there. May have been servants, may have been children. We don't know. We just don't know enough about her. But regardless, out of these humble beginnings, uh, with a group of ladies meeting at the river, the gospel of Christ would spread countless lives across generations, down to and including us today, would be touched, transformed by the power of God at work. So as we, as we wrap up, I, I want to just take a look at uh, three things here. Uh, and, and just draw some things out of what we've been looking at this morning. The first is God's purposes. Um, I often, folks, I, as early as, this, or as as recent as this morning, find myself asking God to show me what he wants of me. Lord, what do you want to show me? What is it that you want to do? What do you want to reveal to me? Uh, to reveal your purposes to me. Now, and it may not be about doing work for God. That could be part of it. But it may be an attitude of my heart that he's addressing. He, he deals with me on that kind of stuff all the time. Lord, I want to live. I want to walk in the light as you're in the light. I want to live in, in a manner that's pleasing to you. I want to dwell with, 
my wife, with my family in harmony. I want to do those things. I'm a fallible man. I'm a sinful man. I'm broken in ways. And, and, and folks, so are you. <laughs> my point is, is that, Lord, work your purposes in my life. If you want to do a change of course in my life, in my heart, I fully give you permission to do that. Yeah, he literally changed these guys' course in, in the story that we're looking at this morning. And they could have pushed forward. They could have said, you know what? We're going to Bithynia. I don't care. We're going to go down to Ephesus. We're going to go down to Sardis or any of the other cities there that they wanted to visit in Asia. They could have just blown off the leading that God was giving them as he was revealing his purposes for them. However, they had a sincere desire to know and to understand God's purposes in their lives. And they complied. They said, okay, Lord, we won't go to Bithynia. All right, we won't go to Asia. We're going to go over here to Troas. Show us what you want. Boom. Then comes the vision. How does that work out in my life? Lord, show me your purposes. Show me what you want. Reveal to me, Lord, in your timing, what it is you might have me to do. Reveal to me an attitude, again, of my heart. Reveal to me an area of sin that I'm sitting on that I don't want to give up. Whatever it is, show me what your purposes are in my life. The second thing is I want to talk about, first we look at God's purposes, and then we look at what are God's plans. Chances are high that God's plan for your life ain't going to look like your plan for your life. Um, I call it having a little mental photo album. I, when I was in my 20s, I had this little mental photo album. Man, I was going to, you know, <laughs> have, have the 2.3 kids in the station wagon and the little house, and, you know, my wife would do ironing. She doesn't do ironing. But my point is, is that you have an idea of how you want your life to go. You've got to be flexible. You've got to understand that we don't, we have to be open as God reveals his plans for us. Now, I don't think that Lydia or these four, la- four men or the ladies that were with her, they could, I don't think they could have imagined the plans that God had for them, that, that he set in motion through their meeting one another at the river that day. I've talked about in recent studies, it was just another day. For her, it was just another day. Well, it's Shabbat. It's Saturday. I'm going to go worship. I'm going to go pray down at the river. I'm going to meet the ladies there. And, and who are these guys walking up? I don't know. Are, are we safe, ladies? There's four guys over there. Coming. They're walking over here. You know, they couldn't have known. But God had plans. He had big plans. question is, is do you seek to understand God's plan for your life? I, you know, I think about the, the twists and the turns, the things that he wants to do. Uh, James chapter 4, verses 13 to 15 says this. says, come now, you who say, today or tomorrow we'll go to such and such a city, spend a year there, buy and sell and make a profit. He goes on, he says, whereas you don't know what will happen tomorrow. For what is your life? It is even a vapor. That appears for a little time and then vanishes away. He says, instead you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we shall live and do this or that. And, and folks, the Lord willing should be part of your vocabulary. 
We're told in the Psalms that, that we make our plans, but, the, the, but that the Lord orders our steps. And sometimes that's different. If I am so rigid that I insist that I know God's plan for a given situation, I can miss what he's actually wanting to do. Pointing all of that, and the point for these people is be flexible. Be flex. Be willing to flex when things change. Be willing to flex when things shift. Be willing to, cha- to, to flex and to adapt as the Lord moves and as he directs and as circumstances come into alignment that you hadn't even looked at or considered. Pastor Chuck, uh, my pastor, Pastor Chuck Smith from uh, Calvary Chapel, Costa Mesa, uh, was very fond of saying, blessed are the flexible, for they shall not be broken. And, and I always like that because I want to, I just want Lord, I just want to do what, I want to follow your plan for my life. I don't want to be so, so stuck on my plan that I'm trying to force you into it. Folks, that's a recipe for disaster. It's a recipe for being really unhappy and unfulfilled and uh, trying to shove round circles into square holes. It, it just doesn't work. So we looked at God's purposes, looked at God's plans. Finally, God's power. I feel powerless in my life, Pastor John. I've heard that before. So just how do I tap into God's power? Uh, First of all, when I hear somebody say, I feel (laughs) the exhortation there, because I'm an emotional guy, just like anybody else, but it's not about your feelings. It's not about how you feel. There are times where I don't feel saved. And I am, I'll guarantee you. There are times where I don't feel like getting along, and yet I do. I don't know about you, but my emotions lie to me all the time because it's not about feelings. I, I call it making up a story. I'll, I'll get I'll get to feeling insecure. Yeah, do I get it? Yeah, I do sometimes. I get to feeling insecure about something, and, and especially if it's something I don't have all the facts, uh, or I ignore sound doctrine or godly counsel, those can come into play as well. That's when my fallen brain can and will fill in the blanks, very often with bad information, with my own twisted imagination of what that's really about. Folks, be careful. Be careful. You want to understand God's purposes in your life? You want to discern God's plans for your life? You want to have confidence that you're walking in God's power and not your own? That's the point in all of this. One word comes to mind, and it's what Lydia was doing when she went down to the river that day, and it's to pray. You see, because as I look at, Lord, I want to understand your purposes. What do you want to show me? I want to understand your plans. What do you want from me? Lord, I can't do any of that unless I have your power working in me. Unless you're revealing it to me and unless I'm getting uh, to the point where I'm discerning what it is that you're saying to me or what you're wanting from me, whatever it is. The only way I can do that is if I am appropriating your power in my life. How does that happen? It comes about through prayer, period. It's a relationship, folks. He is revealed here in his word. He is rela- he's revealed who he is and what he's about and how he acts and how he interacts with us, his people. 
And as I, as I relate to him, as I pour my heart out to him, and I ask him to direct the course of my life, that comes about through the moving, the working of the Holy Spirit in me. I look at this story and I wonder, what was Lydia praying about that day when she got down to the river? You know, I, I, we'll find out someday. I mean, when we're there, was she there praying, God, I just, I just want to serve you in some capacity. I don't know what you're doing, but I have the stirring in my heart. Paul and Barnabas, or not Paul and Silas and, and, uh, Timothy and Luke, they had a stirring in their hearts. That's how come they ended up there in Philippi. So God, what do you want to do? I wonder what they were praying for is God, they realized that God was teaming them up, said that they got together and decided that God was calling them to go to, to Macedonia. The point in that, folks, is be committed to prayer. Be committed to holding your life up to our master. And I don't mean just going down the list. Now that's important. Petitions are important. I'm not going to downplay that. He wants us to come and to let our requests be made known to him. Absolutely biblical. But how can I know what God wants to show me or what God wants to do with me if I don't ask? That's where the power is. Jesus says in Matthew chapter 7, he says, ask, ask, and it'll be given to you. Seek, and you'll find. Knock, and it'll be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, and he who seeks finds, and he who knocks, it'll be opened. So ask for God's purposes in your life to be revealed. Seek to understand God's plan for your life. Knock and the power of God's Holy Spirit will be open to you. Luke, in a companion passage to what's being said here in Matthew, he says, if you then being evil in Luke eleven thirteen, if you know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your heavenly father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask? It's all about prayer, folks. These people were prayed up. The ladies were prayed up. God did some amazing, fabulous things. And we're going to look next week at uh, Paul and Silas' encounter with a slave girl who happens to be demon-possessed. We'll talk about that. We'll also talk about what happens when, with, with government overreach. And I know that's a hot button again in our culture these days. Do you think that's new? It's not new. These guys way overreached. And then they tried to they tried to kind of wheedle out of it, and uh, things didn't go well for them. So, anyway, uh, let's bow our heads. Father, just thank you for this passage in the Book of Acts. Thank you, Lord, that as we go through these things and we look that, uh, Lord, you know it's my prayer, my desire is that we would our walk with you, our relationship with you would deepen. So, Lord, reveal your purposes to us. We pray that you would. Uh, in your time, Lord, that you'd reveal your plans for our lives to us. And, and Father, that as we look at your purposes and your plans, Lord, we need your power. We can't, there's no way I would try to do any of this in the arm of the flesh. And so, Father, we pray that you would give us a fresh filling of your Holy Spirit, that you would work in us, that you would do that work that you desire to accomplish in each heart here, those watching online today, Father, we just give ourselves afresh to you. Pray that your will would be done in us and through us as we reach out 
to a dark and dying world. That's our, that's our, that's our desire, Father. We pray that you would do it in Jesus' name.